So the reading for today in the, in the New Testament, the, the, the lectionary text, is uh, probably one of the most gruesome stories in the New Testament, and uh, so I've, I've decided to edit it a little bit, uh, and we will talk about it. So let us listen for God's word, and I'm going to start with a little context because I think the context is so, so important in understanding the, the Word of God. So I'm going to begin uh, back a little bit. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, and then he called his twelve to him, and he sent them out two by two, and he gave them authority over evil spirits. So you see what's happening here. He has this band of followers. He pulls them together. He authorizes them. He empowers them. And he sends them out to do battle. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why such miraculous powers are at work in Jesus. Others said, he is Elijah. Still others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. But Herod's opinion was this, he said, John, the man I executed, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. He had had him bound and put in prison, and he did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she wasn't able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was puzzled and liked to listen to him. Finally, an opportune time came. This is the word of the Lord. So, what do you think is the most hazardous occupation? Maybe television television shows will give you a hint. Do you ever watch Deadliest Catch? Uh, That would be one of the most hazardous occupations. Logging is very hazardous. A lot of different construction jobs are considered hazardous being a firefighter. I don't know how many of you feel like you're working in a hazardous situation. Um, When I was in college, I was offered a job that paid 50% higher than minimum wage. And that was quite quite an offer. Minimum wage then I think was $3.15 an hour. And they were going to pay me $4.65 an hour. It was, it was a princely sum. I couldn't turn it down. And so I went to work at the Alton Boxboard 
factory over there on Talleyrand Avenue. It's now owned by someone else. And I was going to be a pipe fitter's helper. So I imagine I'd have a big wrench and I'd walk around and I'd follow a pipe fitter and we'd go to some pipes and we'd tighten leak, leaky pipes. Not quite what it was. Uh, I ended up doing things like, well, first of all, they made cardboard. And the way you make cardboard is you have this giant steam and oil-powered machine that's it's these rollers, and it's probably maybe 15 rollers in a row that extend longer than the sanctuary is long and about as high. And steam is dripping and it's it's 130 degrees inside this factory the oil is coming down and pipe fitters helpers had to go in amongst the rollers and 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 unclog the the machine when when pieces of cardboard would would kind of spin off and we would be climbing around underneath pulling out uh, messed up cardboard that was that was fun then there was when what really what really was bad was when things broke down Uh, because a lot of times there wasn't much to do when everything was working great but when something broke I mean people got on top of it I mean that people were running around looking busy they would um, periodically clean the lime kiln the lime kiln was this long tube maybe 75 yards long and 15 feet high and it spun this long tube. It was filled with, it, they cooked lime in it. It was all part of the process of making paper. And every once in a while, they'd have to stop it, and somebody would have to go crawl into that tube and with a pick and a shovel and everything and clean the caked lime from the walls of the tube. Guess who that somebody was? Uh, then there was the time we had to get up on top of the factory, which was about four stories tall, and it was a tin-sloped roof, and just sweep the, the wood chips off the roof to keep the wood chips from, from accumulating too thick on top of the roof. So we would be up there without any kind of safety line or rope, just on that sloped roof, sweeping wood chips off. Uh, there was the boiler repair. When the boiler went down, we had to crawl into this opening in the boiler. And of course, the boiler was turned off, which meant, I don't know, the temperature was 140. It was so hot on the floor that you couldn't walk on the floor. We had to put boards down to walk on to move around inside this cave-like thing called a boiler. Just about every job I did there, I think OSHA would say, you know, this is against the law. I don't know. But I I didn't know OSHA back then. And uh, all I knew was $4.65 an hour. (laughs) And so, I don't know. Have you ever had a hazardous job? What if I were to suggest that being a Christian, being a follower of Christ could be hazardous, could be maybe more risky than anything else we've ever done. I know you're thinking, Bill, don't ruin my Sunday with something like that. 
Jesus sends out the twelve. And if you look at Mark's story, they are wonderfully successful. They're casting out demons. They're healing the sick. They're having a great time. They're, they're running old Satan right off the field with his tail between his legs. He's, they're just, they're, they're so successful. But before we can get to the part where they return to Jesus and they tell Jesus about all the great things they have done and how they, they saw Satan fall from the skies and, and, and how successful they were, before any of that ever occurs in Mark, we have interjected this, this story about John the Baptist and his demise. So it's as if John the Baptist is the cue for Jesus' arrival. Remember this quote in the gospel, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. So the arrest of John somehow was the trigger. It was the cue for Jesus to to come on the scene in his fullness. John was was a popular figure, well-known at the time. And uh, he was uh, uh, someone who was following in the footsteps of the prophets of old and speaking out about the conditions of his society. Remember, he had the strange clothing, the uncomfortable shirt, that camel hair shirt, eating wild locusts, kind of uh, spiritualized Puritanism. But it was more than that. At that time, what was going on in Galilee? In Galilee and Judea, Roman agents together with their collaborators in the aristocracy and the uh, petty landowners, they were all under the protective watch of Herod and his legions, and they operated a vast mechanism of economic exploitation, benefiting a small minority at the expense of everyone else. Imperial, Imperial colonialism always seems to squeeze out the blood and the life of of those whom it dispossesses. The chokehold on the people of Palestine in the time of Jesus was particularly savage. Peasants were thrown off their land. Laborers were deprived of work. When they did find employment, it was subsistence wages and the taxes were through the roof. And within their recent memory, those who had openly protested these conditions had been efficiently and brutally dealt with. Just four miles from where Jesus grew up in Nazareth was a town called Sephorus, which had been leveled by the Romans for its uh, protests. And uh, then... Uh, Herod Antipas came along and rebuilt the town in the vision of a Greek Hellenistic city as a model of Hellenistic culture and taste. So the people of John's and Jesus' day would certainly remember all of this and in fact be living it. For the Jews, what Herod did was always 
a challenge to the sovereignty of God. And so John comes along and has the, the temerity, you might say, to speak against Herod, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was one of the many sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great ruled in the century before Jesus was born. He was the great administrator, the great builder. You remember he rebuilt the temple. He was an efficient uh, tax collector for Rome. He was well-liked in Rome because he brutally kept the peace in Palestine in spite of many uprisings. He would put them down. He would collect the taxes. And then when he died, uh, his, his kingdom was split up among different sons and stepsons and so forth. And Herod Antipas got Galilee in the north and Petra on the east. And so he was not really a king. He was the tetrarch, which, which might as well have been king. He was in charge there. He wasn't quite as capable as his dad, but he was along the same lines. And it, so, like his father, it seemed that the Herod family pattern was multiple marriages, multiple children, lots of intrigue in the palace about who will have what kind of power. Herod Antipas had married the daughter of a neighboring king, a political arrangement. He married this woman. Don't know if he ever really loved her, but on a trip to Rome one time, he stayed with one of his brothers, who was also named Herod. I guess they couldn't think of other names. And while he was with his brother Herod, he had caught the, the attention of, the, of his brother's wife, Herodias. And so he pulled her away and married her. Well, the king of his first wife was incensed and indignant. And so later on, he would declare war on Herod, and that would bring about Herod Antipas' downfall. But in the meantime, Herod had a new wife, Herodias. And John, the baptizer, as we know him, came along and said, you you who are you claim to be one of us, you claim to be Jewish, and yet what you are doing is against the Torah. You can't do this. This is not right. And, and Herod, Herod's style was before a threat could, could bloom and become a, a real rebellion, he would just silence it. And so as John became more popular and as he became more bold in his denouncements of, of Herod Antipas, Herod just had him arrested, thrown in prison, silence him. And there he was. So here is this story of doom, John on death row, because of this horrible Roman uh, despot. This story inserted into this wonderful story of Jesus' disciples going all around, battling demons, whipping sicknesses, all kinds of tremendous 
deeds and wonders. Why would Mark put that in there? Got me thinking. Got me thinking about how Mark, written around 70 A.D. or thereafter, right after the temple in Jerusalem had been squashed and the Jews were being uh, really persecuted by Rome, thinking about what it must have been like to have been a Christian in Mark's day. A Christian Jew, because the Romans really didn't differentiate then. They were really being persecuted. And somehow I think Mark was trying to say that the disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus may share the same fate as their leaders. So don't be thrown off your game if that sort of thing looks like it may happen. In 1939, the Nazis invaded Poland and they occupied Krakow and they arrested or killed a lot of the intelligentsia of the town. One of the students was made a slave laborer. His name was Carol Wajolia and he was pressed into labor in a limestone quarry. And eventually he escaped that, that slave labor, survived the war, and came to, major- in, to live his adult life in a city that was occupied by another power, the Soviet Union. The puppet government of Poland during the Cold War was uh, a brutal stand-in for Joseph Stalin and his successors. Wojolia emerged as the communist regime's most ardent antagonist, especially when he became the Archbishop of Krakow in 1964. But his resistance was only beginning. In 1978, he was elected to be Pope John Paul II. In 1979, Brushing aside the objections of Poland's communist government, Rogolia traveled to his hometown of Krakow, and he went out to a field outside the city, and he celebrated Mass for anyone who would dare to come. But because open practice of religion was illegal, everyone in in attendance assumed that if they did go, they were at risk of losing their job or their apartment or the schooling of their children. They assumed they would probably be out there in a field in a very small crowd. But look around. More than a million people, more than all the population of Krakow, turned out for the Mass. And the Pope's message was simple. Be not afraid, he said. Be not afraid. One of those who heard Pope John Paul's message in the field was an unemployed electrician who had hitched a ride from the coastal city of Gdansk. More than a year later, back at his shipyard, that electrician used a souvenir pen that he had received at that mass to sign 
an illegal document forming the trade union Solidarity. This was Lech Walesa. And having heard Wolgilia, he found it possible to act as if he were no longer afraid. In the Pope's presence, the solidarity of subjugation was transformed into the solidarity of resistance. The solidarity Walesa and his fellow workers established through nonviolent means would overthrow the communist regime in Warsaw. Be not afraid, said the Pope. Be not afraid, said Jesus over and over again in the context of Roman oppression. John's demise, the story of how John's life ends, reminds us that the sovereignty of God is always at issue in the world. The lordship of Jesus Christ is always in question in the lives of Christians, not just on some big political landscape, but even in the privacy of our own homes and hearts. In Mark, Jesus is trying to convey the cost of discipleship, not to scare those who would follow him, but to comfort them. They were already facing such great fear, so many things in the world to be afraid of, And yet Jesus says, if you die with me, you will also rise with me. And when you rise with me, you will enjoy that new heaven and that new earth where there is no more death and no more crying, where the sun never sets because God is the light of the city. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. And so Mark tells us through the story of Jesus' disciples and their journey and through this interjection of John the Baptist to have courage in the face of what scares us. To face up to those powers in the world or, or deep within my soul that want to silence the gospel, that want to take away my joy. That that kind of battle is something that I think is ultimately a spiritual issue. It is a matter of prayer. It is a matter of community. It is a matter of the grace of God. Amen. Amen.